But if you would open in your Bibles to Psalm 125, we have been walking through the Psalms of Ascents. And we find ourselves this morning in Psalm 125. If, if you're new to the Bible, we're glad you're here. An easy trick to find the Psalms is to cut your Bible in half, and you'll probably be in Psalms. You'll probably be close to Psalm 125. And so turn there with me, and I'm going to read. It will also be on the screen for your convenience. Give you a moment to turn there. Psalm 125, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. This psalm is a call to trust. The opening word is those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion like the mountains that surround and protect Jerusalem. And the psalm ends with the same thought, peace be upon Jerusalem. The idea here is the security, the peace, the safety, protection of being surrounded by God's presence. And it comes through trust. Peace comes through trust. Which sounds easy, but it's hard. It's hard for folks like you and I who struggle to give trust because we live in an untrustworthy world. And if you've been around long enough, you've had your trust broken. And if we're honest, you've broken trust. Trust is difficult to give. Maybe you've heard the line, trust is easily lost and hard to regain. It's true. It's hard to risk trust because it is a risk. I remember my father said it on a few occasions when I had my trust broken, whether it was with a friend or a classmate, my father would say, you fool me once, shame on you. You fool me twice, shame on me. And man, I felt shame. I felt shame when my trust was broken. What a fool I was. And so we self-protect, don't we? And we are very slow to give trust. Some of that is wisdom. It is foolish to give our trust to those who are untrustworthy and have proved themselves to be untrustworthy. 
But there's so much shame whenever trust is broken for us. We self-protect and guard against ever giving trust to anyone. And so God invites us to trust him, and that feels like a big ask for us, doesn't it? How do you trust not only this infinite person, but an invisible person? How do I trust the intangible, though very real and present, God? Because the promise is for all those who trust. Peace will be given to all Israel who trust, or what Paul refers to as the peace be upon the Israel of God. Those who truly trust in God will have this promised peace. But we have to get over our mistrust. We have to risk trust to enter into that peace and security. So, would you pray with me that God would help us do that this morning to maybe just take one small step toward trusting in him? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the promise it gives us, the many promises. They're incredible. Lord, they're hard to believe. They're hard to trust. Lord, help us this morning risk trust in you. Lord, you have proven yourself over and over again to be trustworthy. If we would only attend to what you have shown us. <clears throat> Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you've been tracking it along with our series in the Psalm of Ascents, you know we've been talking about this pilgrimage that the people of God made. Three times a year, the law prescribed that all of Israel traveled to the place where God made his name to dwell, to the chosen location of his tabernacle, of his temple, of his house. And so they would go, they would ascend, because wherever you were, if you were not in Jerusalem, you ascended, you went uphill to Jerusalem. And so it was on your way of ascending to worship God, to be in his presence, you would sing these psalms of ascent. That is at least the best guess scholars have about why these psalms are linked together and given this title. And it's, it's fitting. After the psalm of exit, Psalm 120, God, get me out of here, <laughs> you have Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills, perhaps the hills that surround Jerusalem. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 122, I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. And then it ends with David saying, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's where we're headed. Psalm 123, to you, O Lord, I lift up my eyes. My help comes from the Lord. Psalm 124 ends with, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then here we are in Psalm 125. It's as if the pilgrims now catch sight of Jerusalem for the first time and are saying, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, just like the hills that surround Jerusalem, secure forever. Jerusalem was this visible sign of God's safe presence. 
But of course, the pilgrims knew Jerusalem itself was no impenetrable fortress. I mean, many of them walked to Jerusalem while it was still uh, under siege, under attack. It was emptied of its population. And yet here they sing, like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides, or better yet, is settled forever, is secure. Its people are settled in its midst. They said this by faith. Jerusalem was a visible sign of God's safe presence, but Jerusalem itself was earthly. It was vulnerable. It was weak. It was even subject to God's own judgment. So they had to walk by faith even as they laid eyes on the national capital from a distance. Well, I think we're ready for that slide quite yet, but we'll get there. Um, It reminds me of Jesus nicknaming Peter the Rock. He calls Peter the Rock. But if you've been reading the Gospels up to the point where he does that, you think that's a strange nickname for Peter, at best an ironic nickname for Peter. Peter's proved himself to be a person of, uh, of great vacillation, right? He runs hot and cold. He's high, he's low, right? To call him a stable rock is kind of funny. <laughs> and yet Jesus calls him that in, a, in faith. Even in the moment that he calls him that, he calls him that response to, to his, his confession of faith where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. You are the spokesman of divine inspiration. And the very next moment, what does Peter do? He opposes Jesus' cross. In the same breath, he becomes the mouthpiece of Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the things of man, not of God. This is your rock, Jesus? This is the rock upon which you build your church? Yes, it is. Peter would prove to be one of the foundational stones, apostolic stones that Paul refers to. A key stone upon which the church is built. But he would fail again and again and again. And yet Peter would abide. And the church upon which this fickle, faithed man would stand. The gates of death have not stood opposed to the church yet. And they won't. Because God has said so. It's similar to this this notion of verse 2, that as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. And in the picture that was up earlier, you see that this is a picture of the, the, the hills around Jerusalem. This was very helpful to protect the citadel of David, to protect the city 
of Jerusalem from foreign attack because armies couldn't just rush headlong in. They had to sort of part ways and come through different angles as they made their way through valleys, and it made the armies vulnerable to attack. So having the hills surrounding Jerusalem was a helpful strategic military sort of geography. And it protected Jerusalem. And it's a powerful picture as the people of God, the pilgrims, saw the hills, as they climbed these hills to make their way into Jerusalem, to be reminded that likewise, so the Lord surrounds his people. He protects them. On the screen is from Psalm 32, where the psalmist says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, for they have no protection. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. I love that picture, the picture of the everlasting arms of God surrounding those who trust in him. But again, just like Jerusalem being this eternally secure, unshakable fortress was really a statement of faith, less historical fact, (laughs) so likewise, this statement about the mountains surrounding Jerusalem may not have instilled a ton of confidence in every pilgrim. First off, you saw the hills. That's what they are. The hills that surround Zion are about 2,500 feet, which it's like the foothills here in the upstate. On your way up 26, you go through the foothills, you hit that Blue Ridge escarpment, that blue wall, and you're, you're at about 2,500 you keep climbing, you get up to the Continental Divide, you're at 3,000. You head closer in toward Asheville, you're at 4,000. The Black Mountains at 5,000, Mount Mitchell, 6,000. But way down at the bottom are these 2,000-foot hills. That's the mountains that surrounded Zion. And Zion itself was shorter than most of them. <laughs> this, in other words, this isn't the Italian Alps we're talking about. Not that impressive. And as they're making their way up these hills and they're saying the mountains surround and protect Jerusalem, they know that the mountains have failed to protect Jerusalem effectively for hundreds of years. If this was pilgrims after the exile, they know Babylon swept over it like an ocean, didn't phase them that the Persians occupied them, that the Greek kingdom occupied. Now the Romans in Jesus' day occupied. There were soldiers on those mountains at post. And so again, it's by faith that they know, as Micah the prophet says, one day little Mount Zion, this puny hill, will be raised to be the highest mountain of all the mountains on the earth. Whether that's literally true or not, this is what that means. Wherever God's name is, that's a safe place to be. And we can turn that at superstition, not faith. Israel did that. Israel had a mantra in the days of Jeremiah where they would say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah said, don't say that. You can't just live however you want and then go hide in the temple as if God will just protect you. That's not how this works. Ezekiel has the terrifying image of God leaving his house, of God exiting. He he has exited the building and leaving an empty shell saying, this house cannot protect you. You cannot run to the Lord in superstition. 
doesn't work that way. That is not faith. Faith is trust in the Lord, not running to a lucky charm. And we can do that, can't we? We can do that with the church. Surely I'll be safe in the church. Surely I'll be protected. And I don't just mean like in this building. I mean with the people of God. Look, there's no promise that being in the church will actually protect us from all harm. But we will be preserved. We are a preserved people. The Lord surrounds all those who trust him, but those everlasting arms are not a Teflon vest that protects us from all pain and all difficulty. Rather, his presence surrounding us sustains us through pain and difficulty and ministers to us in our pain and difficulty so as to sustain us. Remember that psalm, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Well, Psalm 34 has a similar refrain. Many are the afflictions, I think it's on the screen, many are the afflictions of the righteous, not the wicked. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But what? The Lord delivers him out of them all. Listen, if you engage in community, you will have many afflictions. There is danger in the church. There is danger within our ranks. And the reason why that's true is because the danger resides here in our own chests. We bring evil into the church. The line that's been famously said that divides good from evil is not drawn along national boundaries, nor is it strictly drawn around the boundary of the church from the world. The line that divides good and evil is, runs across every human heart. We have the capacity for evil, and by the grace of God, we have the capacity to do good. And so, to enter into community is to risk. It is to risk hurt. It's to risk trust. You might think, well, I'll play it safe and stay alone, stay by myself. But then you are isolated with your own evil. Who will help you there? There's no running from evil. Wherever we go, there it is. But if we can come together, we contend for each other. We contend for the good that the grace of God brings in our lives. And the Lord, the promise here is sure, and you can trust it. Whatever afflictions we encounter in the course of doing life together as the people of God, he will deliver us from them all. He will sustain us. He will heal us. And we contend for each other even in our afflictions, through them, for each other. The Lord surrounds us. We are not doing this alone. To trust the Lord in community, in the church specifically, means this. 
This is God's people, as messy and as broken as it is. And for me to invest in it, for me to risk trust, for me to risk being hurt, is a risk worth making. Why? Because Jesus laid down his life for this people. He shed his blood for them, telling me they were worth his loss of life. They are worth mine, right? But there will be risks. There will be dangers. There will be affliction. In that affliction, it's easy to be tempted to, to do evil, to respond by evil as we've, re- we've been affected with evil, whether that's running away or that's harming back. Look what Psalm verse 3 says of Psalm 125. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. I just want to pause there for a moment. He doesn't say the scepter of wickedness will not touch the land of the righteous, does it? It says it won't rest there. So evil will touch the people of God. Evil will even stand in the midst of God's people. It will even rule in the midst of God's people. And the idea there could be evil kings in Israel or outside invaders like Babylon or Persia or the Assyrians. Evil can reign in the midst of God's people, but here's the promise. It cannot last Evil has a shelf life. This is unlike Zion. Zion will be settled forever. It will rest forever. It lasts. But the scepter of wickedness, it is here today. It is gone tomorrow. It is temporary. It is ephemeral. It is a mist. It's very real, but it does not and cannot last. But notice the reason why the psalmist says it will not last. It's God's protection of his people's own moral integrity. Lest, he says, the righteous stretch out their hands. Same language that God used to describe Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. They stretched out their hands to eat of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So likewise, God protects the righteous. He protects his saints, he protects those who trust in him from reaching out and doing evil in response to evil. Because when we're under the pressure of evil, of affliction, of pain, it is easy for us, for you and I to compromise, for us to either run away, as I said, or to respond in kind, to play their game with them. But God protects us. He protects us from succumbing to that. He provides us a way of escape. This is what Paul says uh, to the Corinthians. On the screen, you'll see from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the promise that we have and why we can trust God in the midst of painful situations where we are tempted. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And what that means is, however extraordinary the particular temptation you might be experiencing right now, It is not outside the realm of human experience. And it certainly isn't an exemption clause to give in to sin. Jesus does not give you a free pass in a hard situation and say, it's okay to sin in this instant. It's okay to disobey my word because this is really hard. 
There is no such instance on in which you will find yourself, however extraordinarily difficult it might be and feel. There is no temptation that's overtaking that isn't common to the saints who have endured temptation for millennia. Whatever your particular circumstances might be, that's a good promise to know that, okay, this is, I'm not the first one going through this. I'm not alone. By the grace of God, I can do this, right? God is faithful, he goes on. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. God is not going to put you in a situation where you are doomed to fail. God does not set you up for failure. Never has, and he never will. He does not set you up for failure. You have an enemy who does, but you have one who is far mightier than him, who sets you up in every situation for success. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He knows where you are. He knows what you can handle, even with his grace. And he protects you. He won't put that test before you until you're ready. And of course, we never feel ready, do we, when the test comes. But by his grace, we are. In that moment, he gives us the grace we need to endure. He goes on. He will provide also the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Every time a door to sin is open to you, Paul says there will be an exit door provided. There will always be an exit that you can take. Isn't that a great promise? You can trust him that that's true. One of the lies the enemy tells us under the pressure of temptation is, well, you've already come this far, you might as well, right? That's a lie. Smells of smoke, as my professor used to say. There's always a way of escape. No matter how far in you might be, there's a way of escape. So trust him and take it. But what happens when you don't take it? What happens when we walk straight through that door and ignore the exit? There's another door. It's the door of restoration door of grace, which is always open to you. You know, Peter, this rock, failed multiple times. One of the most crucial was actually predicted to him. After he professed his loyalty to Jesus, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times tonight. You will fail. Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, and I've prayed for you. That prayer did not keep Peter from failing to take the right door. But that prayer was effective to restore Peter afterward. And afterwards, Jesus gave Peter an opportunity to reaffirm his love for him in a threefold affirmation to restore him from his threefold betrayal. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Right? We are to be a people who are marked by repentance. And as we come to this communion table this morning, we have an opportunity to do just that, to walk through that door of restoration. It is open to you. 
Thirdly and finally, we are to be a distinguished people by our good works. Verse 4 and 5 read, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. The saints that trust in the Lord, verse 1, who are uh, protected by him as the mountains forever and ever, they are also the righteous who by God's grace will not stretch out their hands to do evil under his protection, who by grace are good themselves, who are upright in heart. Those who trust in the Lord do good. They do good. It's not just that we've been saved from God's wrath. We considered that last week in Psalm 124 as the psalmist calls us to meditate what God saved us from. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, we would have drowned. We would have been consumed in judgment. But it's also equally good to meditate on what we've been saved for, what we've been saved to, which is good works. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To forgive me my sins, yes, and to produce a people for himself zealous for good works. Zealous, meaning like we're after it, we're getting after it, we're pursuing it. That's not legalism. Legalism is not effort. The Bible says make every effort to add to your faith goodness, virtue, excellence, love, Every effort to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's not legalism. That's grace, right? That's a gracious response to a gracious God that is eager to love and serve him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We're eager to do that because we've received such grace, such love. We are zealously pursuing obedience to him, zealously pursuing good works. In fact, it is our destiny. On the screen again from Ephesians, Paul gives a clear articulation of grace alone theology and then immediately speaks of good works. In his mind, there is no opposition. There's not even tension. These cohere beautifully together. He says, For great, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. No one can say, I'm here because I'm better than you. Right? No boasting in the kingdom of heaven. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He's creating in us to be a people who love to do good works, who are good themselves. And these good works, Paul says, were prepared by God beforehand so that we should walk in them. Listen, in every situation you're in, not only is God not setting you up for failure, he is setting you up for utter success. He has good works prepared for you this week. What incredible, mundane good works are you going to do this week? I can't wait to see it. But he has them, doesn't he? Laid out for us to walk in. It's beautiful. But the key to all of this is not good works themselves. Those are the fruit. The root is what this psalm is calling us to. Trust. Trusting in him. Trusting he has good works. Trusting he will protect me in times of temptation and provide an exit door. Trusting he is willing to restore me. 
Because listen, verse five says, those who turn aside, they turn away from this trust, they swerve, is Paul's term for this. They swerve away from the faith, will be judged. They will be taken along with the evildoers, is what this says. And you and I have seen and know people, and we weep over those who are in our midst, whether it's here at this church, another church, or Christian friends who have swerved away from the faith and have gone after crooked ways or these side paths that are not the path of truth. And it breaks our hearts and it scares us and it causes us to ask the question, or maybe it's just me, will I stray? We sang it earlier, Christ will hold me fast. That is a statement of faith. Do you believe it? What is the difference between Peter and Judas? Peter betrayed Jesus. Judas did too. But they had a very different end to their stories. What's the difference? Now, you could argue that Judas' sin was worse. It was premeditated. And I'll grant that. You know, Peter was just reacting in the moment and sinned. He was planning to be loyal to Jesus. It just didn't work out that way. <laughs> right? So you could argue Judas' sin was the more serious or the more devastating. But... What was the difference? Judas, in response to his sin, felt tremendous regret. But it wasn't godly regret. It was hopeless. And in despair, tragically, Judas took his own life in utter despair. Peter, I love this. When Peter saw Jesus, he was on the boat fishing. What did he do? He stripped down, jumped in the water, which was probably not a smart move, because if you ever tried to run in water, I'm, I, I like to think that, like, he finally gets to shore and the boat shows up 30 seconds later. Like, Peter, you could have waited. Like, it's not. But what was he doing? He wanted to be restored to Jesus. He wanted to show Jesus his love. He, he believed Jesus was able and willing to restore him. Judas did not. He despaired of being restored. Do you believe Jesus is willing and able to restore you. Trust him. He's so good, and he's so powerful to do it. One last text here, and then we'll close in prayer and prepare for baptism and communion together. On the screen, I don't know where you are this morning. That might not be where you're at. But wherever you are this morning, I, I bet you have some deep anxieties you're wrestling with. And I just want to close with this. This is like the New Testament version of Psalm 125. So I just want to close with this thought and then pray. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now let me be clear here. He's not saying don't feel anxiety. If that's the case, Paul broke that command because he tells us he constantly feels anxiety. No, what does he mean by this? He means when you are anxious, don't drown in it, don't isolate in it, invite God into your anxiety. Bring him into your anxiety. Cast those anxieties upon him, as Peter says. You're going to feel anxiety. But don't do it alone, right? Don't do it in isolation, but rather in prayer and supplication, make your desires, your requests, your worries known to God. And listen to this. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding and makes no sense to us, 
will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Notice guard is the word here, not will keep you from feeling any anxiety, keep you from any troubles. You will be happy-go-lucky the rest of your days. No, what does it say? That in the midst of anxiety and affliction and pain, your hearts, your minds will be guarded by those everlasting arms. He is with you. He is for you. And so, trust him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are a God who is trustworthy and invites us to trust him, to trust your many promises to us, which you don't make lightly. You give them the infinite weight of your own character. All your words are true. Lord, help us this morning to trust that wherever we find ourselves today, you are worth risking trust in and that in that we will find a true path to peace, to security, to shalom. We pray in Christ's name.